now comes the section where you guys get to sit down and listen to me. <laughs> um, and I'm going to talk uh, from Daniel, from the book of Daniel. And I'm going to be talking on chapter 5 of the book of Daniel. Now, for those who um, have been around and in church for a long time, particularly if you grew up on Sunday school and things like that, the book of Daniel has some of the, probably the greatest Bible stories for kids in it, I, I think. Um, you've got stories of um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, or as I was told when I was younger, that's shake your bed, make your bed, and in your bed you go. Um, the only way I could remember it at that time. Well, that was probably my parents trying to get me to go to sleep at night. I don't know. Anyway. Um, and there's a great story in that, in, in the book of Daniel, how they... they along with Daniel, refused to have the food from the king's table, to only eat vegetables provided to them, and that they would be more healthy than those who had the wealth of the king's table. And so it was after 10 days they came out and they were healthier than the others who ate from the king's table. And then we go on from that and we hear another story. One of, one of, probably the, uh, one of my favorite stories is when the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar sets up and, and then he says, everyone must bow down to it except the three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down, and so they were thrown into the fiery furnace, and yet they did not burn. And this amazing story of the salvation of God, even in the midst of great trial. And we can go on a little bit further, and we hear the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Here's this man who is put into a lion's den for no other reason than he prayed to God three times a day. He just prayed to God, and that was enough to get him thrown into a, a, a den of lions, a pit full of hungry lions, ready to eat him. And then the angel of God comes and stops up their mouths, and they do not eat him. And there's an amazing story. And I don't know, as a kid, as a person in Sunday school, you can kind of like grasp these stories as something of great power, great significance, something out of this world is happening in these scenarios. And the book of Daniel just seems to be full of it. I mean, there's a man who seems to just constantly get into these miraculous stories time and time and time again. And today we're going to look at another one of these miraculous stories. And this one is after the king Nebuchadnezzar is dead. I just pulled that out. Is that yours? says happy mother's day that's not for me don't know why that's in my bible <laughs> oh that's for your mom um <laughs> i've lost myself now okay do you know what oh, there, there. i was gonna say i didn't have my notes there for a sec right so here's this story, and this story is about what's um, often known as the handwriting on the wall. And so I'm going to read a bit of the, the chapter 5 to you to give you the, the story as Daniel tells it. And then we're going to look at the background to it and, and how this actually applies to us today. So this is from Daniel 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar went 
uh, when, uh, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold round his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men come in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief among the magicians and enchanters and Chaldeans and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. So here we have a setting of a feast. And it's a kingly feast. It's a feast being held with a thousand of his top officials of the, of, the, of the who's who of the kingdom. And this feast is taking place in, uh, in Babylon at a time when Babylon was probably at the height of its luxurious uh, living and of the way that it was structured. It was probably one of the most amazing places in the ancient world. And, and at this time, it was also where they, they believed the hanging gardens of Babylon were perhaps um, situated in such a way that it would make the palace of the king Nebuchadnezzar so amazing that it would even be more amazing than any of the temples that were ever built. And in this setting, in this setting of wealth and prosperity, they have this feast being held. But it's a strange time to have such a lavish and large feast because knocking at the door of the city of Babylon is a Persian army. Is Cyrus the king is approaching the very gates of Babylon that very night. And in the midst of this, the king has summoned those who perhaps would be able to influence and perhaps even those who would be part of the elite of the army 
would have been called in to be part of this feast at such a critical time as this. A strange time to have a feast, perhaps. And yet here we have this this king called Belshazzar hosting a feast. The book of Daniel has often been criticised as not being historically accurate and has often come into conflict with uh, historians saying that actually, um, and, and previously they were saying that King Belshazzar never even existed. There, there's no records of him existing other than what's written in Scripture. And so often they would, they would discredit a lot of what Daniel said. Until one day, the archaeologists were digging up in, um, in the Babylon area and they found these cylinders And on these cylinders were written the word Belshazzar. But Belshazzar was actually not king of all of Babylon. He was actually the son, a co-regent. The actual king was another man called, what was his name, Nabonidus. Nabonidus was actually the king. And on these cylinders was written his name as being the king. And he built this... um, this temple, and at the four corners of this temple were these pillars telling what had happened. And in this pillar, it speaks of his son, Belshazzar. Now, when we read this, we hear that he's King Belshazzar, and all of a sudden we think he, he, he's probably, in the, in, if we're just reading it from this, it sounds like he's the one who's in ultimate control. So when they found these cylinders, and it actually was saying that he is just the son of the king, and this, this king had actually gone away to Arabia for a time, and he was not actually there when the Persians attacked. And he had given co-regency to his son, Belshazzar. And this is quite critical, because this is why Belshazzar can only allow the person, the reward he can give, is only third in the kingdom. If you read that, he's offering uh, clothes with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And this shows that Belshazzar was actually not the head ruler. He was just a king under this, his father's kingship. And as soon as they found this, they realized that actually the book of Daniel had it right all along. That actually what had been given as evidence that Belshazzar actually existed was true to start off with, and now archaeology was catching up with what was being said here. And it makes perfect sense that that would happen. And what this does is when we have stuff like this, it allows us to be able to ground the biblical narrative in history itself. It also allows us to hear what's being said with a lot more authority. Because if such a detail as this, him saying that Belshazzar was not the king in charge of all Babylon, but he was only second in charge where no one else in the world knew this at the time, this was the only reference to it, it shows that actually he was being quite accurate in his description of it. Because quite easily he could have said that Belshazzar was the king. But no, he he gives the details that he was only second in command. And this Belshazzar was actually... Uh, related directly to, and they believe directly to, Nebuchadnezzar. And when it speaks about the queen coming in here, it's actually talking uh, most likely about his mother, not the one he's married to, but the queen's mother. And the reason for that is because 
All those he's married to and all his concubines are there already in the feast. And then the queen comes in. And it is believed through um, archaeology that found that this queen of Belshazzar was actually the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's saying, why are you telling me this? It's, it's important to know the direct linking between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Because for this story to make any sense, we actually have to know about Nebuchadnezzar. This story is actually all based upon the previous chapter that is spoken about Nebuchadnezzar. And then there's two things going on in this story that are quite significant. The first is this, that the temple vessels seem to hold a very important place in the telling of this story. When he's talking about um, tasting the wine and he's commanding the vessels of gold and of silver to be brought in, it makes specific mention that they are the ones from the temple in Jerusalem. And it doesn't mention it once, it mentions it twice, directly one after the other. And this is important to emphasize that Daniel wants us to see something here, that there's a direct connection between the vessels that were taken out of the temple and with this story. So we need to wind back. What are these vessels we're talking about? Well, we come to Daniel 1.1, and it says this. In the third year of the, of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jer- uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shriner, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So here it is in uh, 596 BC, this King Nebuchadnezzar has come across from Babylon to now conquer Jerusalem. And as he's coming in and he's besieging the city, this... uh, is almost like as a foregone conclusion. Here's a, a power of significant um, greatness that is far more powerful than the, the Israelites. And the, the, the foregone conclusion is that the Babylonians will just wipe out Jerusalem. And so it happens. But Daniel doesn't attribute this to the power of Babylon. He actually attributes it this to that the Lord gave it into their hands. And in such a way, he gave it that if that if Israel had have been miraculously saved, Daniel would have been confused because he was so sure, so certain that this was what God wanted to happen. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he comes in and, and goes into the temple and he takes what they normally do, and this is quite common in the, in the ancient times, they would go into the temples of those who they'd conquer and they would take those relics and they'd bring them back to their temples and they would place them in their temples to be on display. And then what he does, Nebuchadnezzar then also, as he's there, he takes the educated and, and the, those who are of, of learning and those who are in the king's palace and those who have great um, skills in language and literature. And he takes all these young men, Daniel being one of them, and he brings them back to Babylon along with these vessels. And there in Babylon, he's teaching these young men how to be and how to think like Babylonians. He's trying to retrain them to be and to think like they do and to almost untrain them 
from the ways that they have been brought up in. But the interesting part about this is that they would have had these vessels in the temples and they would have been more akin to what we would see as museums nowadays. So Daniel and his friends would have free access to go into these temples and they would have been able to see all these gold vessels displayed there in the temple. And so this connection that the, that the Babylonian Nebuchadnezzar wanted to break off, in fact, he had done the very opposite. He had actually brought the very reason, the very thing that allowed them to stay connected to the, the temple and to remind them of who they were and who God was back in Jerusalem. And so these vessels are treated with honor. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't dishonor them, but he treats them with honor by placing them in a, in a, in a, in a display, as something that's in, in a way that is saying that actually these are one of the things that are relics that I value. Now, he doesn't have, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have the same value on these that, that Daniel does. It's a different value, but he does have some type of value for them. And so Nebuchadnezzar brought these and put them in what was akin to a museum in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar grew in power and he got stronger and he got more glory and more greatness. And he got to a point where he was so great that he himself thought that he must be the greatest there ever was. In fact, he even said he was, he was greater than God and denied that there was even something greater than him in existence. And Daniel had this dream beforehand that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar that said that if you lift yourself, if you exalt yourself above the Most High, he will humble you and he will bring you down and you will eat the grass like an oxen for seven years until you acknowledge that God is the most high God. And so we have this story where Nebuchadnezzar exalts himself. He stands up in his castle palace. He's probably overlooking all of Babylon, which he has been a big part in, in, in constructing and, and engineering. And, and he sees the beauty of what he has made. He sees his city in its glittering glory. And he says, how great is the thing that I have made? Is there anyone greater than I? And in that moment, he lost his sanity. <laughs> in that moment, the very thing that God said would happen to him happened to him. And he was driven out from among men. And it says he went and he lived among the beasts of the field like a wild donkey, eating grass and the likes for seven years. It says his hair grew so long and his nails were like claws of a bird. And Nebuchadnezzar, was humbled. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar writes about this experience. He says this. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever. The important thing to realize here is when we exalt ourselves, like Nebuchadnezzar has, 
There is a place where reason, the reason of the mind disappears and we are unreasonable. We cannot see things clearly anymore. And there comes a place where you humble yourself and you lift your eyes up to God, where reason returns when you put God in his right place. And this actually, to me, is one of those things that I love so much about the biblical truth, is that it, it, it requires of us to have a reasonable mind when we, when we seek these things through. And we, when we ask these questions, and it actually says that the, the only way we can get reason for this is if we lift our eyes and exalt God. Otherwise, we will never have the ability to be able to reason these things. And here, Nebuchadnezzar understands that when he exalted himself, all reason left. And when he honors God, reason returns. And he says, I bless the Most High and praise and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and I still more, uh, and I still more greatness was added to me. And I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble." <clears throat> So here we have this story of one of the most proud men ever mentioned in Scripture being humbled. And his response is this. His response is to extol and to lift up and to praise the Holy One, to praise the One who all things come from. And no one is greater than him. And Nebuchadnezzar has what we can only describe as a revelation, an encounter with God of such a profound instance that his life is in, in lots of ways transformed. And, and the way that we would know this as well is that in those days, if a king was disposed for seven years, there's no coming back from that. In those days, if the king was out of, out of office, he was out for good. And yet here he is being restored. He himself, in the way he writes it, is surprised. Why would they come back to me and ask me to be king? And here he is knowing it is not because of him now. It is because of God, the king of heaven. All his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now why is it important that we talk about Nebuchadnezzar and the link to Belshazzar. Belshazzar was his grandson, as far as we understand. He would have heard of this story. He would have known that his grandfather was gone for seven years. We have in 597, or 596, the, 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 uh, Jerusalem is conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. In 562 BC, Nebuchadnezzar dies. This story of Belshazzar is probably happening a decade later. So Belshazzar knows quite, quite uh, soon after this has happened all about it. 
He knows all about it. And it would have been well known that the king who had disappeared for seven years had come back. And the reason also we know that Belshazzar knows that this has happened to Nebuchadnezzar is because it says so right here in the Bible. Belshazzar knew about the experience of the humbling of his grandfather and he knew the experience and he would have heard it most likely directly from his, father, uh, from his grandfather. And his response is this, to mull over this for a long time. Now why do we think that he mulled over this for a long time? The reason we think he was probably co- had this going around in his head, and I don't know why he did it this way, but as soon as he tasted the wine, it said, as soon as he tasted the wine, he goes, I know what I'm going to do. Now this, you don't immediately think of something that hasn't been going around in your head for a while. This is not a thought that has come out of the nowhere. This is a thought that's been fermenting in this guy's mind for a long time. And not only that, he knows exactly where they are. He knows exactly where the vessels that are taken from the temple in Jerusalem, he knows exactly where they are because he commands them to go. And he not just says, go get the vessels that he took from Jerusalem. He says, go get the ones that Nebuchadnezzar took because Nebuchadnezzar went back and actually destroyed in uh, 584, I think it was, BC, that Nebuchadnezzar actually went back and destroyed Jerusalem. But he says, not just any vessels from Jerusalem, but the ones that Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple in Jerusalem. Go grab those ones. Those are the ones you need to bring back here. And as soon as they're brought back, they take them and he gives them to everyone. And he says, drink. Drink to the gods of gold and silver. Drink to the gods of iron and bronze and wood and stone. Drink to anything but the God of Israel. This is what he's saying here. They would have been in a place that would have been littered with gods. Absolutely littered. In fact, Belshazzar's name, Belshazzar, Bel being the god of, of their pantheon of gods, he would have been the high god, also known as um, uh, Murdoch. And he was the high god of the gods of the pantheon in Babylon. And so Belshazzar means may Bel protect the king. May the bell, the, the high god, the god of the pantheon of gods, protect the king. Belshazzar would have been known of all these gods in this, this place they would have been. Belshazzar would have known of all of these gods. And he's saying, toast to anything but the god of Israel, the god of Jerusalem. And in this moment, something extraordinary happens. Out of nowhere, these fingers appear and they start writing on the wall. And they were writing something. They knew it was writing. It was not drawings. It was not scribbles. There was something about the writing that they recognized but they could not understand. And this finger writing on the wall And there was no mistake of it. Daniel even actually explains that it was on 
a, a wall that had nothing on it. So a lot of these walls would have had shields and, and gods, um, or, uh, uh, idols of gods and marble statues and all kinds of things. And yet he's saying on this one that had nothing, this blank one that had a lamp shining on it, just to emphasize that his eyes weren't playing tricks on him, this hand starts to write. And the reaction of the king is one of... It's quite, an, it's quite a, a big reaction. It says his, his color changes. And I love how it says, and his knees knock together. Like this guy was a guy who was in absolute fear now. He's like, he's seeing something he's never seen before. And he's in absolute trembling fear. The hand of God has come. The finger of God is writing on the wall, and this man is in fear. But this isn't the first time we've heard about the finger of God in Scripture. The first time that it's describing God using his fingers is in Psalm 8, verse 3. And it's a well-known psalm where it speaks of God in creation. Let me read it to you. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So the very first time in, in all of history, in the, in the very beginning of the cosmos, here's a finger of God who is drawing and forming and creating moon and stars and galaxies with his finger. And these things are of great importance. These things that he's put in place to help us to, to govern the, the seasons and the day and the night. And he does it with his finger but it's in the context of you see the stars, you see the amazing heavens, you see all that's created. And yet what the psalmist is saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? You have all this great worth and value that you've created. All the gold, all the iron, all the bronze, all the stone, all the wood of the universe being created by a finger. And he says, yet not valuable compared to you and me. The finger of God seems to have this moment of being able to point into history and to say, this is what I value. I can fling stars into space. I can create whole galaxies. I can create trees and, and animals with a finger. And yet that's not the value I want you to see. The value I want you to see is that he's mindful of you and me. The God that writes on the wall is a God that is mindful of you and me. When God's finger enters into history, he's telling us, look at what I value. Look at what I value. The next time we encounter the finger of God interrupting history is in Exodus 8. Verse 19. And this is a time where the Israelites are in captivity 
in Egypt. And God sends ten plagues to set them free. But the first two plagues, the magicians of Egypt can easily replicate. And so it means nothing to the Pharaoh. But the third plague comes along, the plague of gnats. And there was gnats everywhere. And the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. See, God had brought his finger back in to history and said, My value is upon my people, those who will call me by my name. And Pharaoh had an opportunity to say, yes, I value what you value, God. But instead he does the opposite. He says, no, I harden my heart. And I say no to what you value. And when the finger of God enters, there is an opportunity for us to agree with these values or to harden our hearts and to disagree with what God values. And in this instance, when Pharaoh disagrees with God, it gets much worse for them. And sometimes I wonder if we can harden our hearts to the things of God, get complacent, perhaps get comfortable. Perhaps when God's pointing his finger at something that he values and we go, not quite yet, God. And our heart maybe just hardens a bit to the things of God. See, the finger of God comes to point what he values, but if we don't agree with what he values... The ultimate end for us is judgment. The finger of God points at value, but the alternative is judgment. And we see this because the next time we hear about the finger of God, we're in Exodus. Exodus 31. And here is Moses, he's gone up on the mountain and the people have come to mountain of God, Mount Herob or Mount Sinai. And God has shouted out, he's declared out the Ten Commandments. All the people have heard it. And Moses goes up. He goes up onto the mountain and he speaks with God and God gives him the Ten Commandments and this is what happens and he says, And God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. The finger of God enters in now. And not only is he saying what he values, he's now writing down laws. And what do laws do? Laws protect our values. That's what they do. If we value life, what do we do? We put a whole heap of laws around everything we can so that life may be protected. So the finger of God's coming in now, and he's saying, not only do you have to just agree with my values, I'm going to tell you what the values are, and then I'm going to put laws around them so that you know the values and they're protected. And the finger of God writes it out on stone tablets. Writes it out. This is my values, and this is the law that protects those values. 
And those who don't agree with the law that God has written with his finger come under the law, which is judgment. The finger of God points at values, but the alternative of not agreeing with the values of God and following what he has put down to protect his values is judgment. That is the only option he gives. Agree with his values or you are going to face judgment. This is the option put before Belshazzar. The finger of God is writing on the wall. You can either hear what's being said, Belshazzar, or you face judgment. And the interesting thing here is Belshazzar is not ignorant of the fact. You see, there's a difference of those who are ignorant. So we have the Apostle Paul, who was ignorant of his persecution of the church. He did not know what he was doing. And God gave him the option to either see him as he is, see Jesus, the risen Savior, or to carry on. And Paul chooses, I have seen a great light. He's seen the light and he transforms. Before that, he was ignorant. Belshazzar is not ignorant. He is not ignorant. And this is a danger for those of us who know the scripture, who knows the law, who knows what God has asked us to do, who knows the values of God. We are no longer ignorant. And here's the reason Belshazzar is not ignorant. Daniel says this. He speaks about Nebuchadnezzar again. And the interesting thing about Daniel is, under Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was the head of all of his um, court in, in, in the astrologers and of the magicians and all the wise men. He was the top wise man under Nebuchadnezzar. And Belshazzar comes along and all of a sudden Daniel's not even invited. Daniel's not even on the, the guest list. Daniel's not even among those who he invites in afterwards. In fact, he's so pushed out Daniel and Daniel's way that he has to be reminded who Daniel is. And the interesting part also is this, is that Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. And here's a king called Belshazzar. Both these names of, the, of, of these names mean practically the same thing. May Bel protect the king. And yet here are two guys with a very similar names, but very polar opposite views on God. So Daniel comes in. And the king says to him all these things, I'll give you gold, I'll give you a robe, I'll give you up to a third of the kingdom. And Daniel answers, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. They mean nothing to me. This is important. Belshazzar's values are in gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. He's is in what he can have, what he can use, what he can buy, what he can manipulate. Those are the things that Belshazzar values. Daniel comes in and goes, they're of no value to me. No value. Your values are not my values. And Daniel says this, I will make known to you the interpretation. And he says, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. 
And he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was among wild donkeys. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. That word son there is the same as father. It's to say predecessor or successor. We would use something in the terms of forefathers. We would use that terminology. But in this term here, it's saying successor. So you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. He knew what Nebuchadnezzar had gone through. He knew what his grandfather had gone through, and he had chosen not to humble his heart. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver, gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honoured. Then from his presence the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tikul, parsin. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tikal, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Medes received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Here's Belshazzar, and, he, and what he's brought against him is this. He's taken what is seen to him as of value to God, the vessels from the temple, not that they in themselves hold any value before God, but there's a symbolizing that they are from the very temple of God. And he has taken what God has said is of value to him, and Belshazzar says they are no value to me. And God says to Belshazzar, your values are of no value to me. Your days are numbered. You have been weighed and found wanting. And your kingdom is going to be taken from you. The response Belshazzar could have done to this is to have humbled himself. He could have humbled himself before God, but what does he do? He carries on. He just carries on as if Daniel had said nothing. Commanded Daniel to be given the robe, commanded him to be given the cold chain, making third ruler. Let's carry on the party. That very night, judgment came to Belshazzar. The opportunity, like his father, his forefather, his, his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar had, was presented to him, and he was not ignorant. He knew. He knew 
Not only that it happened to Nebuchadnezzar, but why it had happened and the response that Nebuchadnezzar had and the result of his response. And he says, still, I do not value the things of God. And when we do not value the things of God, judgment comes. So my question is, I'm going to finish today on this. The bad news is this, when the finger of God comes, judgment is right around the corner. Next week we'll talk about the good news. We need to hear the bad news before the good news. Bad news is this, when the finger of God enters into history, judgment is just around the corner. And we have this saying, don't we now, the writing is on the wall. What does it mean? It's over. It's done. When the writing's on the wall, this is your last option. Value what he does or judgment comes. And the question to us today is what we go away with today, what we will mull over today and this week is this. When the finger of God appears in our lives, do we resist it? Do we say, no, not now? Do we reject it? Do we do a Belshazzar and just say, never? Or are we changed by it? What is our response? Nebuchadnezzar's response was transformation, change. Belshazzar, resistance. King of Egypt, hardened his heart. Moses, went towards God on the mountain. Resistance to the things of God leads to the rejecting of the values of God unless we are changed by the glory of God. Let me say this again. Resistance to the things of God leads to the rejection of the values of God unless we are changed by the glory of God. Do not resist what God calls valuable because it will lead to rejecting what he calls valuable. And we do not want to be those who have rejected God. But we have an opportunity to be transformed by the glory of God. And we'll talk about that next week. So when we go away today, think of this. When there's those things in your life, those things that you value, and God points his finger at it and he goes, I don't. I don't value that. That gold, that silver, whatever it is in your life, I don't value that, says God. What are you going to do? Resist? I'll get rid of it later. Just, just one more show. <laughs> do we resist? Do we reject it? That's not of God. Actually, God, I don't really care if you don't value it. I do. Or are we changed? Resistance to the things of God leads to rejecting the values of God unless we are changed by the glory of God. Belshazzar had the option. He chose to reject the values of God. We're going to hear about what happens when you 
value the things that God values next week. Let me finish by praying, and then we'll go have tea and coffee together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your word is relevant and true today. We thank you that you reveal yourself throughout history and that you have not stopped. We thank you that your finger still interrupts our history, that it still breaks into our lives and points that the things that we value are not always the things that you value. And we pray that we would be ones who would learn and yearn to value the things of God. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. We'll be back next week, if you can. Um, there is good news. Um, and so we want to speak about that next week.